Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called Feminism Civil War. In the chair is Ella Whelan. Welcome back to the Battle of Ideas Festival for this opening debate, Feminism Civil War. My name is Ella Whelan. I'm the co-convener of the Battle of Ideas Festival, um, and I'm also a journalist and author of a book called What Women Want, which is really more of an overblown pamphlet from, that's very outdated now. But I have been writing about, thinking about feminism for quite some time now and always want to hold a debate about feminism at the battle, particularly this year because it's... And trying to pick what angle we would talk about feminism has been tricky because I named this, um, originally named this Feminism Civil War, to look at the tensions within contemporary feminist movements around gender issues, um, uh, but then also thinking about it in the wake of the Me Too movement, even though that feels like a million years ago now. Uh, tensions opened up around generational differences, um, around you know, a more old-school feminism versus a more kind of modern intersectional feminism, uh, people calling themselves second wave, third wave, fourth wave, under the wave kind of feminists, all different kinds of labels, black feminists, lesbian feminists. It's a movement that has been uh, gone through several different iterations, but in the last two or three years, um, I think really has exploded into not just a civil war, but a kind of a, a something that has been debated about in contemporary politics a lot, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. So this idea of today's morning session is really to look at the way in which feminism presents itself today and whether or not it's fit for the 21st century, whether or not it's uh, what it's doing for women, how we talk about it, what women's liberation movement should look like uh, in the 21st century. And I have a fantastic panel joining me to help us think through some of these ideas. Um, so I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they'll speak. They're going to give opening statements for about five to seven minutes, and then in true Battle of Ideas Festival style, we'll kick it out to you guys for some discussion. So first to speak, uh, on my far left here, is Julie Bindle. Julie is a feminist campaigner against male violence, a journalist and an author, and a woman who doesn't need very much introduction. You will all be very well aware of her work. She's travelled the world researching and investigating atrocities against women and girls, and she's reported from brothels in Nepal, breast milk factories in Cambodia, a village built on prostitution in Rajasthan, India, and a big fertility surrogacy clinic in California. Um, her next book will examine the role and motivation of female collaborators in violence against women, but her most recent book... Feminism for Women, The Real Route to Liberation, which is a fantastic new book and is available at our bookshop out in Assembly Hall. I all encourage you to get a copy of it. It's been widely um, reviewed very positively and you really should get a copy and read of it. So welcome, Julian. Thanks Thank for you. being here. Uh, <laughs> next to speak will be Belinda DeLucy here on my left. Belinda is a former MEP for the Brexit Party, where she was a member of the Women's Rights FEMM committee in the EU Parliament. And she has a master's in EU law and is a regular contributor to talk radio, specialising in topics such as the EU, democracy and free speech. And she's also the mother of four teenage daughters. So as well as a personal um, interest and, uh, and perspective on what women need, what young girls need, um, and what feminism does for them. She's very welcome here, but also commentates a lot about 
contemporary feminism and the, what, what is going on in the realm of law in relation to women. So welcome, Belinda, and thank you for being here. <laughs> Next up here over on my far right is Anaya Falaran Eman. Anaya is the founder and the director of the Equiano Project, a forum to promote open dialogue on matters of race and identity. She is the cultural and youth engagement trustee for the National Portrait Gallery and helped found and deliver numerous freedom of speech initiatives, including Index on Censorships, Free Speeches for Me, the Free Speech Union, and the Free Speech Champions Project. And uh, Anaya and I were at a a young person's conference called Living Freedom a number of weeks ago and I cornered her and asked her whether or not she would speak in relation to feminism because so much of her work relating to free speech and identity politics um, I think really relates to today's topic around contemporary feminism so we're very welcome here and thank you very much for being here Naya. And last but not least here on my right is Naomi First. Uh, Naomi is a journalist with bylines at the Red Box, the Times, the Telegraph, the Independent and Spiked. She is the co-author of the Parisian's Guides to Cafes, Bars and Restaurants. And I've known Naomi for many, many years now. And um, with our work together, we've often had discussions about contemporary feminism. She's been all over the place on Sky News, on TV and radio, writing in various publications about what it means to be a woman in the 21st century, what women need in relation to women's politics, and looking at some of the issues in relation to contemporary feminism. So welcome, Naomi. Right. I have a particular view of, of contemporary feminism, but that I am strictly neutral this morning um, and really want to uh, reiterate the sentiment of the festival, which is free speech allowed, which means that there, this, I don't want to use the term safe space because it makes people's, you know, makes people tighten. But actually, this is a place where you can um, voice any disagreement. So let's open it up and kick off the battle. So we'll start with some opening speeches. Julie, your opening thoughts. Well, there are obviously hundreds of ways to be a feminist, but most of them are wrong. <laughs> and what passes for mainstream feminism today um, is a disgrace and it's not feminism it is a feminism that benefits men uh, which is why I called my book feminism for women because if you think about the issues that men support that men on the left in particular all of a sudden are very passionate about these are issues that actually give them a little bit of a leg up in the patriarchal um, structures such as reframing prostitution as sex work, slut marches where women are walking through New York City or London or wherever, protesting sexual harassment and, and embedded sexism within uh, culture and within um, uh, criminal law agencies by writing slut across their naked breasts and being clapped by men. Okay, if women want to do that, good for you, sister. But why is it that men like it? And I always say that if... Men like a particular brand of feminism, we're doing something wrong. Because it should actually make men feel uncomfortable. It should be a challenge to patriarchy, to patriarchal structures. But here's the good news. My type of feminism, which I just call feminism, I don't use radical feminism, I just call it feminism, is the most optimistic political movement on the planet. Because we don't believe that boys are born with any kind of innate aggression towards girls and women. We don't believe that rape and, and violence of any kind perpetrated by men on women and girls is natural or innate. We don't think that boys are programmed to harm women, to want to dominate women. 
So we think that change is not just possible, but inevitable when feminists look towards liberation as opposed to equality. And when feminists actually stop buying into what's known today as identity politics, but having lived through it in the 1980s in the women's movement, I'd just call it identity politics without the politics, without any politics whatsoever. Because the identity politics of today does nothing but seek to fracture solidarity between women and look at what divides us as opposed to what unites us. So an intersectional feminism, which has always been practiced from when I first became actively involved at the end of 1979 when I was 17, Intersectional feminism is recognising structural oppressions based on material reality rather than individual identities such as being sapiosexual or polyamorous. When did you hear about somebody losing their job or being beaten up in the street for being polyamorous? It's absolutely ludicrous to suggest that women can't come together under a common cause when the one thing that unites women and girls everywhere around the world. And I would say the only thing that unites women and girls around the world is the fear and reality of male violence. There is nothing else that unites us, but look how prevalent this is. And it's not necessary, of course, for a man to hold a gun to a woman's head to make her scared and curtail her freedom. It's not necessary for all men to do this to all women, because of course we know that the majority of men do not commit acts of violence towards women, but a sizable minority do. And this seeks to keep us in a perpetual state of low level to quite extreme fear. And there isn't a woman in this room who would deny having curtailed their lives in some way or another, made choices because of the fear and reality of male violence to women and girls. And yes, of course, men also are killed, are murdered, are abused by other men in the main. We know that this is a tool that is used to keep women in our place. And it's not a conspiracy. It's not that men get together in these kind of secret planning meetings and say, you kill that one next week and we'll rape that one the week after. But it is about a tool that means that women understand that we are vulnerable to it. And what feminism does isn't to re-victimise women and to tell women that we are all Victorian ladies who need smelling salts if we see a penis in a changing room. Feminism seeks to liberate women and resist male violence to reiterate the point that this is not natural or innate and to say we are not having it. So rather than feminism being the problem for women, we are the ones, real feminists, who are not looking at the glass ceiling. I give no fucks at all about 10% less than a million dollar salary. At all. What I care about are the women in the basement. The women who have the least choice, who are the worst off, who are the most oppressed. And that is what my feminism is. <laughs> Women rising up from, the from the, the, our low status and oppression and saying, this is not for me. And all that we need to do, and probably I'm going to be busy for the rest of my life, 
is to recognise that unless all women are liberated, then we shouldn't be interested in the most elite women saying that at least they have a choice when other women don't. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. Belinda. Thank you, Julie. I have to say it's because of women like yourself and many other grassroots feminists on the left who've taken all the, the flack, you know, put, risked so much over the decades that allowed feminism to be so successful when I was growing up as a girl. And I think women on the right have been a little bit slow in supporting you. Um, and I think that needs to change. At least we're now at a crossroads where I think feminism can transcend left and right because some, something fundamentally has gone seriously wrong with feminism. Um, mainstream Western feminism, uh, to me, couldn't be less appealing um, or less helpful to women. Um, you know, for me, feminism is about focusing, as Julie said, on, on the, the, the sex-based abuse of the worst off women and girls around the world. It should be universal and unconditional, not this kind of political creature it's morphed into that kind of contorts our party leaders when they're asked what a, what a woman is. <laughs> feminism now is more splintered than ever. It is getting further away from its core message. It has become conditional. It has become cowardly. It has become obsessed with dealing with, with issues that are politically uh, soft and correct. Mm -hmm. and, and feminists, I find, avoid supporting and championing vulnerable girls um, if it risks them being not liked. Um, and that I found quite scary in modern feminism now. Um, you know, they seem far too happy with this climate of fear that has now been enforced on, on women who want to speak their truth to power. So many women are actually frightened about talking about what's real to them um, as women. The Women's Rights Committee in the EU that I belong to seemed far more obsessed with, with Trump than it was about the thousands of girls that were being raped in England from north to south of, south of the country. It's because... I feel the white working class girls weren't um, celebrity friendly. You know, their cause wasn't fashionable, so feminists avoided it at all costs. Um, feminists and women betrayed those girls, and I'm not sure if feminism can recover from that betrayal. They were treated like trash by the authorities. There was no hashtag movement or protest for them. Um, the same goes, actually, I think, for victims of domestic violence. Their cases seem too complicated to be endorsed by, uh, for their cause to be endorsed by celebrities. Um, the focus on feminism now seems to be all about being kind and sensitive, petitions and petticoats, social media, tweets, selfies, rather than getting our hands dirty and having the courage to be disliked for prote uh, to protect the most vulnerable of girls in our society. Um, the feminism I see, and I think my daughters see as well, it blames all women's misfortune on the behaviour of men. You know, saying chivalry, chivalry is sexist, depriving lots of us women from the respectful behaviour we loved. Um, it infantilises girls with all this mansplaining and man-interrupting. And to be quite honest, my girlfriends interrupt me far more than, than men do. There are so many more important issues at hand. Um, most of the chat in the FEM committee I was in was about board women uh, on boards and all women shortlists. Even Caroline Lucas was talking a lot about, oh, let's have an all-women uh, cabinet. How patronising, what a terrible message to send to girls that their success depends on men stepping aside and allowing them to go through. 
Um, but one of the worst aspects of mainstream feminism for me now is the deafening silence from the Women for Women brigade, some of whom even joined at the witch hunts against women like J.K. Rowling and other women who face intimidation for defending um, single sex spaces and sports. Whatever your opinion on it, you know, this is, this is where women were literally thrown to the dogs by these faux, faux feminists who claimed they were for all women. They're not. Only some women matter, only some women, women's lives matter, and it's become far too uh, political. Um, under the close eye of modern feminism, women, women have sort of green ladies flashing at traffic lights and we're supposed to go, yay, progress. Um, when, <laughs> and we want Justin Trudeau talking about she sessions and, and a women instead of a men. This is turning us into a joke. It is trivializing the most important things that women face to stop the abuse and harm. Sex-based oppression that is happening to girls now. Um, this is why I, I, I'm not surprised that a lot of men are finding feminism very confusing. We choose which causes to support, throw other women under the bus. Um, we've got, you know, the White Wednesdays in Iran, a group of fantastic women throwing their hijabs off and dancing in the street, risking imprisonment. Where, where are the women supporting the girls there? It's all become so um, sort of privileged and Western and about quotas and stuff, and it's just missing the point. Um, in, in my children's classrooms, the, the, the gender ideology that's seeping through has become massively discriminatory against women and girls, but feminists don't speak out. In fact, it's becoming quite indoctrinating. And in my, in my daughter's class only the other week, um, the teacher had to give a trigger warning to the girls in the class and say, he said, I'm going to put a tweet up from J.K. Rowling and this may cause offence. And you, and he said to the girls, you may have to walk out and I'll understand because this tweet is going to be very upsetting. And then just put her tweet up saying, dress how you please, be whoever you like, but sex is real. And the girl, girls' nerves are shredded. And then he handed out a pamphlet um, saying basically how evil TERFs were. And this is what the girl, young girls are being groomed to, to believe that their female biology and the protections it sometimes requires is, is hateful, is some kind of violence against other people. It's, it's very dangerous and it's happening to our young now. People do whatever you like. We're all for everyone's happiness. But, but this kind of grooming of women to dislike their own female biology, at the same time, social media is saying, you know, if you're not feminine enough and female enough, you, you might not be a girl. Or at the same time, hardcore porn is being accessed by, by young boys, prepubescent boys. I've been involved in cases um, that see the consequences of the hours and hours of violent online porn young boys uh, are having access to. And it's coming at the same time female loos are being taken away or being made into unisex. It doesn't make sense. Where is feminism? So all I would end on in saying is that we do need a movement desperately. It is not the mainstream feminism. I don't know what the question is if mainstream feminism is the answer. It's more along the line of Julie's fe feminism that I'm, I'm after, but I, I feel right now, sadly, it's in the minority. Um, so that's basically how I, how I feel. But we do need something. Thank you very much, Melinda. <laughs> Anaya, your opening thoughts, please. Yeah, so I'm, I'm one of those um, women, the majority that doesn't identify as a feminist. Um, and my interest in feminism, I guess, has become more so recently in relation to how it's impacting uh, women's freedom. And I think that one of the reasons why uh, feminism has become incredibly unpopular amongst women is that many of the things that is said about the way the world is um, doesn't really ring true to what the majority of women um, experience. And I also think that this kind of narrative that there is this all-encompassing kind of patriarchal system that 
uh, you know, it feeds through every aspect of women's lives and it puts us in danger and fear every time we go out, I actually think is really part of the problem, which kind of reproduces um, a sense of vulnerability and victimhood in women, which can actually help encourage them to retreat from public life. And I think that many of the issues raised, I think there are kind of specific problems that require specific solutions. And so before I kind of go on to that, so in relation to women's freedom, absolutely, I think most women can resonate with this um, idea that you have slightly curtailed your behavior in relation to going out at night. But I think also when we do look at the statistics, um, it's not necessarily um, what, what is being told. So the overwhelming majority um, of kind of sexual violence or, or kind of violence against women does happen between people that women know. So this idea that, you know, when you go out, you're likely to um, have somebody kind of preying on you or, or kidnapping you is actually incredibly rare, thankfully. And according to the Office of National Statistics, this is in long-term decline. And so actually men and women are recognizing that many of these things are fundamentally a problem. And I think both men and women agree that this is a problem and want to work together um, to do something about it. And I think framing this kind of perpetual fear of, of violence um, from men, I think, is actually very corrosive um, to, to gender relations. And I think what was really interesting about the, um, the, the kind of Sarah Everard um, case was this kind of reclaim the streets. And this was almost like a rallying cry for freedom to we're not going to allow ourselves to be cowed. We're willing to risk free, um, danger, risk fear, in order to actually really live a full public life. And I think that part of predatory behavior is dependent on this idea that, you know, women are vulnerable, women are prey. And I think that actually, you know, if women reject that idea and don't see themselves <coughs> as such and see themselves as kind of fully actualized human beings capable of, of, of taking on the risks of the world, then I think that that is a really great message and much more empowering message then this um, very um, fearful message about public life, which I just don't think um, stacks up. And I think that actually, you know, we, we've kind of touched upon pornography. But I do think, well, whilst I do think there are excesses of, you know, pornography and, and imagery that is undoubtedly uh, damaging and questionable, I think that some women do choose to do that. You know, some women do choose to, to be a walk-on girl or, or be a page-free model. Because, and that's choices that they've made. And I think that we there's this kind of failure of imagination to realize that some women um, do find those things empowering, do want to do those things. And I think uh, a feminism that supports women's choices, women's freedom, is a feminism that I think really encapsulates the diversity of women and doesn't seek to see women as, as um, wanting to restrict their choices as consistently and always fearful of predatory male behavior. And we see this in relation to how a lot of discussions about uh, violence against women are framed. So uh, Belinda touched upon kind of catcalling and, and all of these types of things. And it's seen as almost a continuum or a, a spectrum in relation to some of the horrendous violence that happens. And actually, that's just, that's, that's not true. There isn't this innate, uh, you know, male uh, predator that is just coming out when somebody catcalls all the way to somebody um, committing a horrendous act of violence. And I think that actually we've got to be able to keep our definitions, be clear about what we're talking about, be clear about what we mean, and not mixing everything together. And I think that this, again, contributes to this kind of culture of fear and, and retreat um, from public life. And so in relation to specific problems that do exist, so we are seeing women's reproductive rights being rolled back, and, and we need to have a response to that. Um, and I think that's something, again, not just 
specifically for men, um, specifically for women, but for women and men. We, there's still issues in relation to childcare. You know, one of the things I, I um, have been really interested in, and I think that um, feminists could really benefit from talking about, is potentially women being paid um, to, to do um, childcare, and that is something that could balance up. So I do think that we, we, there are specific problems that require specific solutions that don't require us to um, think of ourselves as this consistently um, oppressed, victimised sex class. I think women have just as much in common, if not more so in common, with the, the guy that they might live with than, than this kind of imaginary, um, kind of unified, single um, experience um, of women. Um, and so I, so I think ultimately the problem with feminism today is that it, it seeks to undermine women's freedom, seeks to undermine women's choices and, and make concrete a view of women that we are kind of vulnerable and victimised. And I argue that feminism would be much more powerful if it saw women as, as agentic, as willing to take risks, um, willing to you know, em embrace danger and all of the complexities that life has to offer because we are fully formed, fully fledged human beings. Thank you very much. Hanomi. Am I a feminist? I've asked myself this question more than once over the past decade or so. As a student, I thought, yes, of course, it sounded cool and important, and it often annoyed particularly irritating men, so it definitely seemed like the fashionable option at the time. As I entered the working world, there were certainly times when I encountered inappropriate behaviour, which wouldn't have happened to me if I were a man. I didn't like it, but did that make me a feminist? A few years later, when I moved to London, the question arose for me again, as a myriad of supposedly feminist campaigns and Twitter storms hit the headlines. Cast your minds back to 2015. The company Protein World put up posters across tube stations of a skinny, bikini-clad woman alongside the tagline, are you beach body ready? And there seemed to be a collective meltdown. Across social media, um, women and women's groups got really angry about a protein supplement ad, accusing it of body shaming. Consequently, the posters were removed. To me, this seemed ridiculous and counterintuitive. Did we want the world to think that women could get so upset by a photo of a thin woman that we needed it removed from the public sphere? Was this today's feminism, heightened sensibilities about the merely superficial? In another news story, the fictional children's character Fireman Sam was accused of sexism by the London Fire Brigade for using the outdated language of fireman and consequently preventing women from becoming firefighters. The London Fire Brigade brought out the big guns for this one and tweeted a picture of firefighter Barbie in support of their cause. <laughs> <laughs> but beyond the ridiculous, there have also been constant suggestions that women be treated as perpetual victims. The mooting of women-only train carriages, or being able to report men to the police for wolf whistling. On the back of all of this, and the fact that I really, really didn't care what Emma Watson had to say about anything, <laughs> I could only conclude that no, I was not a feminist. But that isn't the whole story. And while a number of recent feminist campaigns have me rolling my eyes, there's also been a lot to get angry about. For a small but noisy group of transgender activists, the battle for trans rights must apparently come at the expense of women's rights. So now you risk being labelled a TERF, a trans-exclusionary radical feminist, if you voice concerns over male-bodied people who say they identify as women coming into women-only spaces. It's scary how much influence this particular activist lobby has. 
the very word woman is under threat. Public health campaigns have been adapted, reducing women to their biology once again. We have become menstruators, people with a cervix, or pregnant people. Ignoring how dangerous this could be for women looking to access essential health services, but unable to get past this manufactured language. When even the word woman becomes akin to a swear word, you have to ask yourself, what is the end goal here? Why must women be erased to make space for transgender people? And why isn't it happening to men? I became a mother last year, and suddenly a whole new world of inequality has opened itself up to me. Pregnant women are constantly infantilized in this country. We're given a strict set of rules as to what we can and can't eat and drink for nine months, yet not offered much, much explanation as to why. Recently, the World Health Organization even advised governments to prevent any women of childbearing age from drinking alcohol, just in case, not even women trying to get pregnant. How can it be considered permissible in 2021 for a state to try and control a woman's body? Meanwhile, maternity services are substandard. At the height of COVID madness, pregnant women like me had to fight for the most basic face-to-face -face checkups, and some women were forced, were forced to endure childbirth without the support of their partners. This is inhumane. Today, with a one-year-old and back to work after maternity leave, for the, for the first time in my professional life, I find myself on an unequal footing as I do my childcare calculations and realize there is no difference to me financially whether I have a job or not. I keep working simply to keep my foot in the door, but it's particularly demoralizing to think your entire salary will only just cover your childcare. We have the third highest childcare costs in the world, and for the majority of families, it still falls to the mother to adapt their work because of this, cutting down on hours or even stopping work for a while. Politicians pretend they're serious about equality for women in the workplace by wearing patronizing, this is what a feminist looks like t-shirts and paying lip service. Enough already. Like most women, I do not want grandstanding. I want practical changes that mean I'm not penalized for being a mother. So at the end of the day, and despite all of the annoyances within today's feminism, there are still important fights to be fought. And so I suppose, begrudgingly, I am a feminist, but I won't buy the t-shirt. <laughs>
that's irrelevant, has nothing to do with it, and that the material realities of our bodies can be transcended. And as Naomi mentioned, we're really just, as one group called us, bodies with vaginas. And then suddenly I start thinking that actually my periods and my breasts might mean something to what it means to be a woman. So there's a lot of, that we can take this really anywhere is what I'm saying. Let's, let's see where it goes. Um, feel free to ask any questions and make comments. So let's see some hands. Uh, thanks. I wanted to say a big thank you to Julie for reintroducing the concept of liberation and liberation from, from material conditions back into the discussion because I think it is so important that we think about what the material barriers to women are. I think it's important to put childcare on the agenda. It's the last remaining demand of the women's liberation movement from the 70s that hasn't been addressed and I think it has particular urgency today because of the caring responsibilities that we will have with an aging population towards our parents which we don't choose to have you can choose not to have children but you can't choose not to have parents to care for and it will be very often women who are pragmatically put in the position of doing that and the question that I wanted to ask which I wrestle with is whether with the orientation that we have now towards identity politics, or as you correctly say, just identity, whether it's something we did to ourselves in the 1980s when we started to talk about the personal being political and allowed that to shape what <coughs> feminism became. So panel's views on that. Thank you very much. So I was sold this spectacle, right? And I come in here, like, learning about the grooming gangs, like, that really shocked me to the point that, like, I cannot stop thinking about it on a daily basis. And I'm saying this because, as I say, I was expecting that, like, it was, like, from the outside, you know, like, it, it, it gives the spectacle of the country, like, being very transparent, like, be able to address things in the moment. And so thank you for, like, mentioning this. You're a hero. And also I want to say that like we cannot get mad at people like Tommy Robinson because he's like the symptom, not the cause. And we have created this monster of this bad guy by ignoring the issue for like 30 years as a society. And yeah. Thank you. Okay, lovely. This one. Thank you. Um, I think increasingly women on both the political left and the political right um, do share your view, Julie, and pitch this idea that what unites all women everywhere is uh, fear of male violence. But I actually think that's a really hugely problematic statement to make because I think not only does it have a very degraded view of both men and women inherent in it, but increasingly I think it creates this kind of existential problem without a solution because it's a statement which doesn't necessarily stand up to statistical scrutiny because, of course, whenever a woman makes it home successfully and quite safely at the end of the evening, you know, that's not a news story. Nobody comes out and says, you know what, I, I went out, I had a really great time, I wasn't murdered, I wasn't raped, I just got home, thank you very much, everything was absolutely fine. Um, and, and the fear becomes an internalised fear, it becomes a psychological fear, and, you know, you, you can see even just in news reports this morning where various solutions have been pitched to this problem uh, that's now being raised about women being too scared to walk the streets alone at night, you know, that we should have these telephone numbers, 888, that we can dial. And every problem like that, every, every solution like that, you know, we're then told, you know, that's not the solution we're looking for. Women should just feel safe. Well, yeah, of course women should just feel safe. But, but the more we tell women that they are in danger, that they are scared, you can't 
you can't legislate for safety, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You can't um, have any laws in operation that are going to make feel women have this existential sense of feeling safe to walk the streets alone at night. Women only feel safe by telling them that it is safe, not by telling them that there are problems and that we're going to create these solutions to them. Thank you. I mean, yeah, I was listening to the radio on my way up to the festival yesterday and the head, some big guy in BT, is boasting about the fact that he's making this app or wants to make this app mm -hmm. that will allow you, your family or your friends to track you on a night out. It's like my teenage self's worst nightmare. <laughs> You do not want your parents knowing where you are when you're 17, 18, 19 going out. But the, the, let's delve into this you know, very real conundrum, which is that even if it isn't statistically the case that women are likely to, uh, that what happened to Sarah Everard or Sabina Nessa is likely to happen to you, what happens when that, I don't want to call it fake fear, but what happens when that perhaps manufactured fear that isn't you know, based in reality, becomes a reality. I mean, I have women at, at university age who are telling me that they're terrified of being raped on campus. On campus, one of the safest places you can be on a university campus. And, and I don't think all of them are bullshitting. I think lots of them actually really genuinely do feel that fear. And how do we deal with that? So if there is this push to, this, to deconstruct or to reanalyze what is a woman, what constitutes a woman, then um, in... It seems to me that feminism, as it's conceived and as it, uh, is it, uh, it is understood, has no reason to exist because there are no women, per se. That's one point um, which I would like to, to see discussed. Um, and the other is a, f a proof that feminism or the feminist movement or the movement for women has won, one of many proofs that it has won, is that now in, in many places, like workplaces, you've got even special, uh, special laws co uh, consisting on special laws regarding harassment, bullying, sexism, and misogyny. If there is a push for equality, then uh, why are we not ha uh, having a push for having special chapters in workplaces against misogyny as well? That would seem to me more like a push for equality. Okay, thanks. I mean, question about whether having policies in place is a win, because if you have policies in place, it means sexual harassment exists, and or, or does it? Um, I wondered if the panel had considered the extent to which um, the, on, the, on the trans issue and the deconstruction of women, the role that the Istanbul Convention played in that. And you'll notice that all the countries that, that bowed out of the Istanbul Convention specifically said it was because that it introduced as a Trojan horse all these concepts that deconstructed the concept of woman. And the, the push that the gentleman at the back said towards this, uh, to, towards this deconstruction of women in our legislation is actually the result of the push towards ratification of the Istanbul Convention. And I was wondering if anyone in the panel had considered whether or not this push for the Istanbul Convention actually used our fears about violence against women and girls to introduce um, the destruction of women themselves. All right, um, let's go in reverse order, just a, just a minute and a half. Uh, yeah, I think... Uh, so. We've been bringing up the Sarah Everard murder, a few of the other unfortunate recent murders that have happened, and um, talking about what, what would make women feel safer. Um, and I, I do think there's a contradiction there because um, I think, as, as Joanna was saying in the audience there, um, women are generally safe. You know, I've, you know I, I go out, I go out late, I, go, I get home on my own, I get home safely. Um, and I think you do want to be careful about not 
making especially sort of young girls, teenage girls grow up believing we are constantly in danger because that isn't that isn't true. But at the same time, there's this contradiction of you do feel slightly vulnerable as a woman getting home late on your own. And how do we how do we deal with that? Um, and I, I sort of worry about the idea of more legislation, like making misogyny a hate crime, that kind of thing. I don't really see how that will make me feel safer. Um, I'm not sure what what benefit that would have. And I feel like there's there's always an element of there could be uh, very practical solutions, like which doesn't happen enough in London. Just seeing some police patrol the streets at night might be nice. You know, just do you know, Bobby's on the beat again. That might be reassuring, but these things will get pushed aside for instead, let's have a policy against misogyny or let's have a, you know, misogyny becomes hate crime. And I don't see how that could have any impact on me and how I feel walking home at night. Um, and then this idea as well of bringing policies into the workplace, uh, have a policy against misogyny. Well, I'm sorry, but I would assume that a workplace should not be a misogynist environment. Why do you need? A policy against it you know we have we have laws for against discrimination and uh, for equality in the workplace and uh, those are the are the tools you need to use if um, you know obviously sexism does occur or misogyny might occur in the workplace I, I just hate this this idea that women constantly need extra legislation extra help just to just to get along when I don't think that's the solution I think the solution is if something bad happens, you make a lot of noise about it and you, you stand up for yourself and, and that in turn will hopefully encourage other women to also voice their concerns and show young women that, that you know, we are powerful people with agency and that is how we overcome these issues. Great, thanks. Anaya? Yeah, I think um, uh, to touch upon the kind of, the person was political, I think... We see that now with the politicization of all aspects of public life. And what that means is in order to get your issue at the top of the agenda, you have to frame it in a very existential way. So we hear that, you know, there's a pandemic of racism. You know, there's time up when it comes to um, the environment. And then feminists have to then, you know, think that there's a pandemic of misogyny and sexism in order to, for it to be taken seriously. And so everything is framed in this very existential crisis to which there's then no differentiation between issues and therefore... I think, understandably, many young women then think that, you know, that the comment that someone said at university or, you know, a, a night out that didn't go, go the way that they perhaps wanted it to is the exact same thing or, or on the same spectrum as, as a horrendous incident of sexual violence. So I think the existential framing um, does a lot of damage. But I also think it may, means that we lose perspective. Yes, there are still issues, but the idea that, you know, the lives of our, our, our mothers or our grandmothers was in some way the same as the ones that we're living, I just don't think is true. I think things have genuinely um, progressed significantly for women. One of the things that um, uh, I mentioned talking about this a few days ago was in relation to the gender pay gap. What's really fascinating is that for women under 40, um, uh, particularly there's almost no gender pay gap between men and women um, for under 40. So there's huge progress happening, um, but this existential framing requires us, enables us to both lose perspective, exaggerate the problem and make no differentiation and between issues. And then just touching upon the, the point about the kind of grooming gangs, I do think the hypocrisy is, is hugely, um, stark, uh, hugely stark. So for example, you know, those girls were, were not 
considered the kind of ideal woman and so nobody wanted to speak up for them but we also see that in relation to kind of female empowerment in relation to uh, uh, different ethnic minority communities um, uh, Muslim communities we oftentimes you don't speak up for those women um, who are experiencing um, challenges and issues because um, it's not convenient it's not um, politically correct and so there's both hypocrisy and um, but huge exaggeration which I think ends up meaning we don't really solve any issue whatsoever. Brilliant, thank you. Belinda? Um, I would definitely pick up on the whole misogyny becoming a hate crime thing. I have grave concerns over that and more legislation for women. If I thought it would help those most in need now, I'd be, I'd be all for it, but um, I don't think it's going to help conviction rates. I also worry that sexist jokes and boorish behaviour that you know, women see from men and men can see from women... You know, women are quite capable of dealing with that sort of thing ourselves. You know, we are adults. We can say, you know, enough of your chat, mate, you know, jog on. We don't have to call the police because we think someone's being misogynistic to us. And I do think there has been this culture of fear for girls that they're incapable of fighting back and incapable of saying to a man who's touching them up on the tube, take your hands off me now, you know, and humiliate him. We, women don't do that enough. We're conditioned to kind of like grin and bear it until the next stop and then just get off. And I don't want my girls growing up like that. My girls have to grow up with massive agency. And if they are safe to do so, because there are many times women aren't safe to fight back and they have to comply, but where women are safe to do so, they jolly well take on men and their bad behavior. Um, and I think if women started to do that more, there'd be less fear that men getting things slightly wrong nowadays are suddenly going to have, you know, a phone call from the police. I think hate crime, for whatever it is, is, is very dangerous because someone has to decide what misogyny is, someone has to decide what hate is. And it has been proven that since the hate crimes um, have been reported, far less convictions. It's just taking police time, and the police need to be on the beat, you know, walking the streets and knocking on the doors of women who are get, getting beaten up. Um, I also think feminism has to stick with looking after females. That's the whole point. If it was for males and females, it would be a human rights movement, and there are lots of movements for that. Um, and the reason why feminism has come so far is because we have concentrated on uh, the sex-based abuse that females have suffered. Um, you know, more women are going to universities and doing professional degrees than boys are now and coming out with better grades. We've made huge leaps, and we should celebrate the success of feminism far more than always worrying about or seeking disadvantage all the time. Um, and in terms of when did it change, uh, I think that was the first question, when did it suddenly lose its way? Um, I think when our rights are enshrined by law, it's very easy to, for a lot of these movements to suddenly, you know, seek other ways of being purposeful and having a reason for existing. Um, and that can happen to all sorts of sort of civil rights movements and things like that. And I think feminism did lose its way. It needs to be brought back um, to the core roots before it completely turns both men and women off. Um, and I think that is possible, but the hypocrisy has to be brought out and empowering women to be responsible for their own bad decisions with men as well has to be taught to girls for them to, to have an easier time in life. Thanks, Julie. Well, the personal is political was a slogan from the 60s when actually this wasn't about each individual woman's personal life. It wasn't actually identity politics. It was too big for that. It was about, it was about heterosexuality and the misery for many women living in relationships that were really dominated by the assumption that women um, will not complain um, about having unwanted sex, um, being beaten up, being mistreated, and having a miserable life, having really crap sex, as it turned out for many women. 
Um, and so women got together in consciousness raising groups and politicized the sex class of womanhood. It wasn't actually about individual issues at all. It was a hugely political stance and it led to the women's liberation movement, a political movement based on um, the um, desire to overthrow uh, male supremacy and to liberate women. So I don't think that, that, it, that it's fair to now look at the blue-fringed idiots going around with their polysexual nonsense, um, that somehow we brought that upon ourselves. It was twisted out of all recognition. Um, I do have to say about the, the, the issue about the grooming gangs and about Tommy Robinson, totally and utterly, 100% disagree um, with the idea that Tommy Robinson is somehow a champion uh, for white working class girls that were abused. Um, I actually broke the story of the grooming gangs in 2007. I was the first journalist to write about it in a national newspaper. And interestingly enough, The Guardian turned down that piece because they said it could lead to accusations of Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. I published it in the Sunday Times and I was instantly put on Islamophobia watch, not because I said this was something that Pakistani Muslim men were doing to white girls, but because I said that there were men doing this to working class girls that were seen as scum and that the police didn't give a damn. And because there were significant numbers, because of the geographical location of where this was happening, of men that happened to be from Pakistani Muslim communities. They were doing it because they were abusive men and pimps, not because of their ethnicity or religion. And so Tommy Robinson is a chancer. He's a racist chancer, in my view, in the way that some right-wing men have got involved in this issue. And all of a sudden, they give a damn about girls that are being raped and abused. Sorry, but we grow our own here. That's the thing. We grow our own child abusers. And I had seen it for over three decades before I came to this story. <laughs> And so that has to be a piece of history that we put right. Feminists did give a damn because I was looking at this from the late 1990s and I saw it very much as these working class girls, as I say, were seen as scum. Class is, is the issue here, not, not race and ethnicity. And, you know, I'm also against misogyny as a hate crime. I'm against hate crime per se. I think that, first of all, you'd be arresting every single bloody bloke on the planet, except for the police are so misogynistic, <laughs> they'd be patting them on the back. And if you're talking about misogyny in the workplace, someone would have to go and arrest Owen Jones at The Guardian at morning conference, because in my view, he is a misogynistic little shit. Mm -hmm. and, but somebody else... <laughs> not everybody will agree with that. And I'll finish on this. The idea, and I absolutely hear what, what my friend is saying about women being, you know, how we can get paralysed with fear. Feminists do the opposite. Feminists say we're not having this. The Sarah Everard murder has come after six decades of feminist campaigning about male violence, which primarily takes place in the home. The morgues do not lie. Three women every week die at the hands of violent partners, ex-partners. The morgues tell us the story. Women are being murdered. Women are being raped. There is. Femicide has always existed. And this is not an epidemic right now. Nothing has changed. There's no more or less male violence particularly, although feminism has done an absolutely amazing job in introducing laws and raising awareness and telling women you don't have to stand for this. The streets are way less dangerous than is the home. 
And what we said when Peter Sutcliffe, the so-called Yorkshire Ripper, was killing women in West Yorkshire and elsewhere back in the late 70s and early 80s, which is how I got into feminism, we said, we're not having this, we're not being curfewed, we're not staying at home, we will march the streets, and that's when we, we uh, organised Reclaim the Nine marches. Sarah Everard, as tragic as that murder is, is one of many, but this is not reflective of where male violence and abuse takes place. It's mainly in the home. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Let's come back out. Uh, Julie, I'm really glad that you mentioned class because a, a huge part of your work, which I admire so much, has been about the economic exploitation of women and the extreme forms of economic exploitation that occurs in a brutal system of exploitation. And I think it needs to be... Why I think it's so important to bring that back and foreground it is that, as a lot of people have said, where we focus on women's relationship to men and male violence often and in terms of the, um, the, the exploitation of women by men, by their husbands and their brothers and so on and their neighbours, what we overlook is that what women, many millions and millions of women all over the world have in common with their husbands and their brothers and their sons and, their, and the men in their lives and in their communities is that they, are the, um, they live in, in a world in which they are exploited economically and in which they have no proper democratic control over their own lives and over the political lives. And I think that's really the thing that unites us and I think that we have, it's, it's, it's easy to form a consensus around male behavior, how we should deal with it and what women should do. I don't believe that finding massive agency is actually going to solve the problems of the millions and millions of people who live their lives in utter poverty. And I think it's a very narrow discussion that just focuses on us and our lives um, in this society, there are millions of women who live um, in, in utter poverty. And they are, you know, degraded in a system that um, exploits and degrades human beings. And I think that's where the, the coziness of the consensus that there's no left and right in this anymore. And really, it's just about how we all, as women, come together to deal with either overcoming our fear of men or pushing back against it does... I think, opened the door to the culture wars and it's created a huge blind spot about the really important material conditions of people's lives. And those are the things that unite people. Thank you very much. The microphone here. Okay. Um, the violent men that perpetrate domestic abuse um, seem similar to the, to the violent men involved in street and gang violence against men. Um, this is a question directed to, to Julie. Should feminism take more interest in the male victims of violent men to help reduce violence against women? Thank you. Okay, so um, loads of really, really excellent points have been raised um, about sex-based violence and about class especially, because I think that's something that really does get overlooked a lot in the feminism discussion. 
But I'm going to say something that hasn't, you know, I think a lot of people on the panel probably disagree with, which is that I believe that women's rights and trans rights are not necessarily completely opposing <coughs> issues and can't be worked out together. Um, and I believe in something called gender abolitionism, which is that basically the end goal of feminism should be to get rid of gender full stop. Because the problem is a lot of what causes this sex-based violence is the fact that I feel as though a lot of men, cis men, whatever you want to say, um, see me as, you know, a pair of tits. And a lot of gender is basically the idea that women are shy and submissive and sexual, and that's all that we're good for. And for gender, and to get rid of that idea is what I believe to be true liberation. But at the same time, I think that that can also be a very powerful tool for trans liberation as well. Because the more that trans people don't have to prove that they're real women or real men, then the more free that everyone can be in society. But I want to know what your real idea of liberation is. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something I think Belinda had said, which is sort of the issue of maybe where the attention lies within feminism. So I think I always think of it as activism having sort of limited resources, right? Like you can't focus on every issue all at once. There's only so much funding to go around. There's so much media attention to go around. And in a way, I think we're still talking about a lot of the things that in some sense have already been dealt with. So for example, you know, in the Sarah Everard case, there was no one that I heard in society making the argument that it was her fault for being out at night, right? Like everyone sided against her murderer and with her and saying she is the one who is right. She did not do anything wrong. Like he's the pig, right? Like, so in some sense, I feel as if that's almost a settled issue. Similarly, talking about workplace uh, harassment. When I was younger, I experienced harassment at the hands of an older male manager at work. I reported it. Um, it was swiftly dealt with. I was kept on, he was let go. And I found that, in some sense, the system sided with me. Like, I won that battle. And so, in some sense, to me, there's not that much left to do in that regard. And also, you know, I'm an educated professional woman. Like, I know how to fight for myself. So, if feminism, you know, is looking for issues to deal with, I think focusing on, you know, lack of education for young women and girls in strictly religious communities, like... Again, domestic violence, like rape and abuse in the home of young girls, like those kinds of things are more important because, you know, those girls can't necessarily speak for themselves, so their voices need to be amplified. People like me, you know, I can find a stage if I want one, so, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Given that um, women's lives have been so massively transformed for the better, certainly in my lifetime, and also given the statistics that we've heard that actually uh, violence against women, you know, isn't any higher. In fact, um, it's, it's, it's probably, I would say, far lower than when I was um, a young woman. Then the, the sort of emphasis in the discussion and in public debate right now about um, male violence against women and abuse does seem to me to be remarkable in that um, it, isn't, it isn't any worse. Um, and something I think that we should consider in the public discussion is that we've just come out of um, 
18 months of the biggest uh, artificial panic uh, where people were isolated in their homes, being told that they were going to die every single day or they were going to kill somebody else. And I think that really has affected um, the public discussion and the exaggerated, the sort of sense of vulnerability and fear that people feel. Because it, it doesn't seem to take much these days to literally have a moral panic about everything. And I, I, so I think that that's, that is influencing this discussion and it's kind of warping it. I do not um, feel united with women on the question of, you know, uh, being afraid. I, I do not feel afraid. I, I, I go to work, I go out, I see friends. I do not routinely feel afraid. Um, there, there, there was one, uh, there's been one encounter in the last 30 years on a bus where a woman was being abused by a man. And at that point in time, I felt afraid because I decided to intervene. But, the, the, you know, the, the, it was a, it's like one in 20 years. So uh, what, what, what I feel, what unites me with other people is uh, a political outlook um, uh, that supports freedom. So when I see people on the tube not wearing a mask, I feel reassured because I sort of think like, oh, they've, 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 they are kind of asserting um, their agency and their freedom, um, and they're not, they're not going along with this panic that we're all about to die. That's, those are the people when I look... I don't look at women and go, she's on my side. I look at people not wearing masks, and, and, and I think few that are the same people in this world, be they men or women. Uh, hi, thanks very much. Um, can I just say particular thanks to Anaya and Naomi? I thought uh, so many of their points, which I would agree with, were very eruditely and eloquently put. Um, Julie, uh, with regards to, you said that feminism should be about liberation rather than equality, and I was just wondering if you could expand on what the difference is between the two. Uh, if you're not aiming for equality, does that mean that you think that women should be in competition with men? Um, and uh, you said that um, that you don't think men are inherently evil. Uh, that's something that's, that's wonderful to hear, especially since I'm, a, I'm aware that you have expressed a desire to put them in camps before. Um, do you, do you recognise male issues? Um, you said that feminism should be for women. Uh, so what should men do? Should they have their own movement uh, that is in competition with feminism? Because equality, for one naturally is equality for the other by default. Um, and you said that you think that feminism should make men uncomfortable, but if men are not inherently evil, why would the liberation of their mothers, their sisters, their daughters, their wives, why would that make the average man inherently uncomfortable? And just as a final point, you said what unifies women in your perspective, the only thing that unifies women is the violence that men exert upon them that, to keep them in submission. And simply because we've talked about it a lot today, why don't you think the physiology of women is something that unifies them? Why don't you think the, the fact that women can have children, the fact that women have ovaries, that they have breasts, that they have two X chromosomes, why don't they, those things unify women? I simply think that to suggest that women are unified by the actions of men is misogynistic. Okay. We'll take one more and come back to the panel. Well, yes, um, I'd just like to make a, a very, very brief point, more an obs ob observation. I've been working in the IT industry for a very, very long time. And um, a friend of mine um, has been working on, with a small team, um, developing systems that are now commonly used in 
newspaper websites and a lot of websites where they track the emotional valence of particular stories. So we're, in, we're living in a very, very different industry now where people's attention is the main driver of the business that they, that they actually manage to get. And the people who are running newspapers and websites know exactly how much fear they're injecting into the public domain with all of the stories that are targeted towards women to drive, to drive a sense of fear because they know it gets clicks. We hear, very, very, we hear very few people talking and acknowledging that really in a very strange way, we're living in a culture of fear. 20 years ago, you had to make, an, you had to make a choice about what magazine that you were going to buy because you, you had to put your hand in your pocket. Now it's virtually free and we're being sold fear constantly. And I think women, unfortunately, are being targeted more and more and more by that. Okay, thank you. <coughs> right, let's talk back to the panel. I mean, this, this is a question I've been tussling with, which is one of, one of the panelists mentions that there have been attacks on women's um, reproductive rights over the last, actually during the pandemic with heartbeat bills in Texas, but also discussions around rowing back um, abortion law, even here in this country with um, challenges um, on the basis of discrimination against disabled people trying to row back some of the provisions for abortion services in the UK. And tied up in the, in the idea of why there should be limited abortion services or why women shouldn't be able to make free choices when it comes to accessing abortion or, or indeed contraception is the idea that women can't necessarily be trusted, that we have to have some level of intervention either from doctors or from politics or from the law or from some kind of spotty clerk in a pharmacy telling us, you know, we have to give them the results of what happened last night before we get the morning after pill is this idea that women can't be trusted, that they need some kind of either protection or, or intervention. And is that, is that linked to a growing sense of fear? Is that linked to a, uh, or is, it, is, is the liberation of that hampered by the idea that women need to be afraid and protective, which often comes from, I suppose, what some people in the audience have talked about as a culture of fear or a policy of fear within some contemporary feminists that say you have to live at a heightened state of not trusting yourself and not trusting your own um, sensibilities and your own decisions. How do those two work out with each other? And anything else, you feel free to ignore that and pick up on anything just for a minute or two. Julie. Well, lots of questions um, from our friend over here who probably asked me about eight questions. I'll address, one. I'll address one of them. Equality versus liberation. Equality um, means that you have to have a default position. So, so all this nonsense that um, Emma Watson talks about, everyone has to be equal, but to whom? So clearly we're talking about women being equal to men, which means that we accept the status quo, we ask for a seat at the table, we disrupt nothing at all. Liberation feminism is about smashing the table to smithereens and saying we're starting again, we're not having this. By the way, I have to comment about the camps thing. So this rumour has gone around for some time that I want to put all men in a Nazi concentration camp. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how it went from me actually joking in an interview about until men sort themselves out and stop causing us inconvenience by raping and killing us, we should actually lock them all up in a Butlins-type place where they can have quad bikes, they can have white vans, they can have bicycles if they're Dutch, and they can be monitored by female wardens until they've sorted themselves out. Their wives and mothers can go and visit or take them out for the day like you would a library book. But they're back in until they behave themselves. That clearly, they say feminists have no sense of humour. Guys, really? You leap from that to a Nazi concentration camp? 
the thing about fear is feminists do the absolute opposite than keeping women in an abject state of fear. We say we're not having it. There is the problem of femicide, of women and girls being killed because we're women and girls by men. And we resist that and we say enough is enough. And that's why we campaign for change as opposed to keeping women petrified. And that's the difference. We are not the ones instilling the fear. Okay, brilliant. Thanks. I'm actually going to come to Naomi next on anything. Uh, yeah, a couple, a couple of points. Um, I think uh, someone mentioned uh, talking about what unites us and coming back to um, Julie's idea of um, sex-based violence and that's what unites us. I, I would disagree. That is not what unites me to my um, fellow women. There are lots of things that, that do unite me to other women um, and biology is one of them. And any woman who's ever been caught short uh, in a public loo and had to ask another woman for a tampon will, will, you know, relate to that, that biology does unite us and you can't get away from it. Um, and I think that that's something where the trans issue that I think the woman over there mentioned as well comes into it, um, is that I've, we start feeling like our biology, which I never questioned, um, has come under threat by transgender ideology. And I have absolutely no issue with anyone wanting to live as a, as a transgender person. They should be able to do so with dignity and, you know, live as they, as they see fit to be happy. But it seems like their need to live a certain way must also apparently be imposed on, onto us. And we're asked to sort of, like the lady over there suggested, why don't we just forget gender? I don't want to forget gender. Um, why not instead, you know, change what, what gender means? Think about, you know, tomboys. We've been doing this, women have been doing this for ages. You know, we were told, oh, being a girl is, you like pink, you like sparkly, um, you only do delicate things. Well, we got rid of all that ages ago. You know, we were climbing trees when we were little girls. We just, just change what it means. And you don't need to, you know, and in that way, everyone can sort of live as they like without imposing that onto other people. And, I mean, within also the trans ideology, I, I have difficulty with how contradictory it is because on the one hand, we're asked to believe that a person can change sex, that a man can become a woman, a woman can become a man. But um, parallel to that, there are apparently 100 genders or no gender at all. And I just can't quite wrap my head around it. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so yeah, to my main point was that, yeah, I think there are lots of things that, that unite women and what frustrates me actually is um, the feminism that that gets put out there in mainstream media that we constantly end up talking about are things like BBC female presenters getting paid marginally less than Gary Lineker and um, <coughs> whilst at the same time criticizing I think and I mentioned this uh, darts walk-on girls and you know Formula One grid girls for doing something that you know a certain type of woman thinks, oh no, that's demeaning, yet those women are happy to do those jobs, so let, you know, let them do it. Um, and what I would like to hear more about is um, how women uh, can be free and, uh, and have agency and, and, and do all the things that men have been able to do for a long time. And there are, there are obstacles to that which are important and which don't get dealt with, and they are things like childcare costs. They are things like maternity services being terrible. Um, and these, again, these are things that end up, I think, uniting women. These are things that, 
that we don't hear about and that have been bad for a long time. Okay, Melinda. Um, yeah, I would definitely pick up on um, basically how, well, how I grew up with, with, my dad was more of a feminist than I was, put it that way. He, he really drummed into me how masculinity was an incredibly good thing and a wonderful thing for women to grow, grow up with. I mean, we, most women I know love men, want to be with men, whether it's friends or as lovers, we're natural teammates. Um, this message isn't sent out enough to girls. Girls are kind of being talked to, and I agree, actually, first of all, see, you know, what am I frightened of? What are your intentions? And here's a list I have for what a boy needs to be, and do you tick it all, and only then are you an acceptable man to me? Um, that's really bad for girls. Uh, I think girls have to fall back in love with masculinity. I think men have to fall back in love with their own masculinity. Um, strong men don't hit and hurt women. It's the weak ones that do it. It's the half men. It's the cowards. It's this, this needs to be separated and talked about in the discussion, um, that actually looking after women and girls is a, a joint enterprise for men and women. But feminism has to be about females, and it's not because I don't have a huge amount of um, empathy for the trans community, but um, they are separate. And there are lots of vulnerable groups out there that face terrible things in their lives, and I feel very much for them all, but this is just about sex-based abuse and oppression. And yes, it's a minority of women that experience it, but they are worthy of our attention. Um, so, I mean, in terms of class, the lady might mention class. I think that's really important. I think it's been a lot of, sort of middle-class women telling working-class girls that it's inappropriate to be grid girls and this, that, and the other, taking jobs away from them. That has harmed uh, feminism a lot. Um, very different from, by the way, the kind of hardcore porn element that, that is mucking a lot of our children up. We had this giant social experiment adults are doing to boys and girls. We haven't even seen the results of what that's going to, uh, the consequences to girls that's, that, that that's going to, we're going to see about that. Um, I'm trying to think of the other points that were made, but I think I might just add on um, that uh, I think catastrophizing everything, whether it's climate change or, or Brexit or women must, you know, on the streets. I think it is literally shredding the nerves of our kids. And it's far better to tell them all the positives and how safe they actually are. I mean, thank God, as a woman, I was brought up in England. I, I'm, I feel desperately lucky because I do find the streets safe. And I think it's a dangerous message to say to women, don't trust police, because it is, it is a tiny minority. They do have a terrible effect, but we do, do need to reassure girls that they are pretty lucky growing up in the UK. Okay, thanks. And nine. Um, I would agree with pretty much everything Naomi said. I think the idea of the abolition of gender is, is a really bad idea. I think what happens when that is attempted is that we end up fixating on language because women don't have specific language to describe the uniqueness of the experience. So then you end up talking about birthing persons and menstruators and things like that when what we are really talking about is women. Um, and I think that women are not united on male violence, but I do think women are united in relation to um, their physiology. And I think actually if we do um, talk about the material experience of being a woman, then we can actually talk about um, those material issues such as um, childcare and reproductive rights that we've not been able to talk about because um, we're not consistent in terms of what we're actually talking about. And so I would agree that actually it harmful elements of gender can be changed. So, for example, black women were never considered, you know, fragile and dainty. They were conceived of capable of doing any kind of work and actually very masculine. And that has been something that has been eroded because we've, you know, realised that's quite harmful. So I don't think the idea is to abolish gender because I do think it has, it is culturally um, and socially influenced, but I do think a lot of it has got roots in, in physiology. And I think that any kind of um, movement actually has to be grounded in some kind of material reality. And I think part of the problem with a lot of um, 
contemporary activism in many different ways. It's, it's all about my truth, my narrative, mm. when actually it's got to be rooted in what reality is actually happening. Okay, great. Let's throw it out. I mean, that, there's, how about this for a question? There's two sides to this, which I think we've been bouncing back and forwards. There's the extreme things of, of you know, violence, rape and murder of women as a question. And then there's the other side of, of, or the other end of the spectrum, if it is indeed on a spectrum, that's the question, of things that mostly take up my... I hope my husband's not in the audience anyway, but mostly take up my day, which is me being pissed off that I'm the one that remembers to put the socks in the washing machine. Or if that when, you know, when women have kids, that they're the chief nose wipers and the people who duck out of their office meeting or at their job to go pick up the kid from, to take them to a doctor's appointment. You know, the kind of low-level stuff that, is, that seems to be expected to be my job as a woman and is you know that kind of underlying thing which actually takes up I'm, I'm spend less time being freaked out on the streets and more time being pissed off in the kitchen and so you know what is that linked you know is it we, we we lots of people talk about a spectrum of male violence and sexism um usually talking about the fact that oh you jump from a wolf whistle to rape and murder and the people have called that into question but is, the, is there something going on that's linked between the way in which women are expected to act in the world and the expectations that are put upon them? And then what happens with, as, as Judy coined it, the kind of uh, sizable minority of men who commit violence? Or are these separate things? So, yeah, uh, regarding, regarding violence, regarding, um, so, so, um, regarding male violence, um, I, I think that the problem uh, with women that are victims of violence is not the likelihood of violence, of violence to happen because men are actually way more likely statistically to be victim of violence crime than women. I think the problem is that uh, women are actually um, less prone to be able to defend themselves. So my first question is to what extent the legalization of uh, force multipliers like pe um, pepper sprays and uh, CCW, concealed carry, um, pistols and so on and so forth, weapons, uh, can actually help women defend themselves. Uh, hi there. Um, me and my colleagues have come here today from the University of Sussex. And as I'm sure a few of you know... I'm sorry for you. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> Thank you. I accept your condolences. Um, Kathleen Stock, one of our professors, has been coming under fire recently for her views on what a woman is. So if you ask people who are critical of Kathleen Stock what their definition of a woman is, they will say a woman is anyone who identifies as a woman. So my question to the panel would be, is there a problem with this definition? If so, what is it? And what are your general thoughts concerning the Kathleen Stock situation? Thank you. Well, the official festival position is solidarity with Kathleen Stock for her appalling, but the appalling behaviour against her at the University of Sussex. She was... Yeah. She was due to speak here um, yesterday and couldn't make it simply because of the fact that, it, that under no, uh, this is not kind of hyperbole, she is seriously freaked out by threats to her, um, not just at the University of Sussex, but at her home. She is under a serious amount of um, abuse, so any messages of support you can send her, we send her, please get in touch with her on social media and let her know that she's not alone in her very sensible view of rejecting the kind of transgender ideology on campus. I was came into this discussion thinking that I was going to agree with a lot of what you were saying. And I do, to a large extent, I don't think misogyny should be a hate crime. However, over the last year, I've been had every night I go out with my friends, I have the battle of, I'm okay to walk home by myself. Every time, 15 minutes at the end of the evening, don't worry about me, I'm fine, I can walk home by myself. All my other friends are like, no, you're not, we're walking you home. I'm like, 
I'm fine. And then I was thinking, why is it that my friends are so scared that I'm walking home by myself? When I am capable of talking for myself, I'm quite strong, they all know I'm quite strong, you know, I can defend myself. Then it came to think of me, I've been working in the hospitality industry for a year, I'm 17, I'm not 18. In my last job, I had a 70-year-old man, when I asked him for his COVID info, ask for my number. I was like, okay, that's actually really weird. <laughs> and then working at a restaurant which is dominated by men, all of the women are able to stand up for themselves, but the entire time, bearing in mind some of us are under 18, we have been pretended to be in, like they want us to be in relationships with these 30-year-old men, and actually it's quite vile. In, and also in school, there is increasingly the sexual, like, sexualization of like, uh, female counterparts. So I don't think it's all getting better. I don't think misogyny should be a hate crime. But at the same time, there is becoming this really, really like, lack of respect for women in everyday life. So I just want to know what you think about empowering women, but also recognizing the fundamental issue in like, the way they're represented. Thank you very much. Right. So male violence, who are these, these small minority of men committing these violence? That would be the question that I would be asking. I mean, my personal opinion is they are going to be psychopaths, they are going to be uh, malignant narcissists as a rule. The prison population, these people, uh, and really should we not be finding out how to best spot psychopaths, best to spot malignant narcissists? slightly difficult when they're in police officers' uniform. Yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, you're 17 and I'm 31. And I know that, you know, being raped or being attacked on the street is pretty rare, thankfully. But the reason that I'm scared, being, so, being older than you and all of my female friends around my age and younger than me, is because we are constantly harassed. We are constantly harassed. I've worked in hospitality and retail in academia and it's everywhere. It's unwanted groping, it's unwanted catcalls, shouting, and even though almost all of those incidences don't lead to anything physical, like, not sorry, don't lead to any like official assaults or attacks, thank goodness, we've all got stories of being touched without our permission or being, you know, um, uh, uh, remarked at um, in a derogatory way and that in my opinion I can only speak for myself is what makes me afraid and uncomfortable walking home at night I know I'm probably not going to get raped I know I'm probably not going to get attacked but if I'm walking home in a quiet road and I see anyone else on that road I think back to the countless times where I've experienced some sort some sort of harassment and that's what makes me scared okay thank you I uh, just want to make a quick point about uh, safety on the streets. Um, on, on a Saturday <coughs> night, if you go to any town in the country, you'll see plenty of violence, male-on-male -male violence. Uh, you don't see much uh, male-on-female violence. And a lot of it doesn't go, goes unreported. And as, as yeah, she's usually in a particular age group, you know, 24, 18 to 24. So once you get beyond that, you don't see a lot of it. But it, if, if, I'm in, if I'm on my own and I'm travelling <coughs> home on the tube or whatever, then I am conscious of the possibility of violence. And it's not restricted to women. You know, as I say, at late at night, big groups of lads, all drunk, the chances of the violence of, you know, being perpetrated on, a, on another man is huge. And, and I think it's naive um, 
it's naive to not think that there is a risk of violence and to not prepare yourself in those circumstances, to not put yourself at risk. As a young man myself, I got kicked unconscious outside a, uh, an, an illegal drinking club at three o'clock in the morning. But, you know, and, and putting myself in that position put me at risk. And I knew that, and that's part of the, the thrill of going there. But, but, but what I was saying is, that, you know, it, it's, I think that just as we can overstate the, the risks of violence, we can also underprepare, especially, you know, nice middle-class kids are underprepared for, for the risks that they don't realise they are taking. Um, so I'll just put, throw that out there. Thank you. Okay. I'm sorry, this is going to have to be the last contribution. Um, I'm interested in hearing all of your thoughts on Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson's inability to answer the question, <laughs> do only women have cervixes? Because I think I was discussing at the start, of the, or before the debate, we were discussing, there's a way to answer it, really, that kind of appeases both parties, I think, anyway, but neither of them could answer it. Do you think, first of all, do you think that's had an impact on... Uh, what impact do you think that has? And then, um, I forgot my second part, the uh, second question. No, that's... Yeah, what that's impact do you yeah. think that's yeah. had? The cer cervix conundrum. <laughs> I don't mind if someone who was not born a woman wants to identify as a woman and live their life as a woman or as they think a woman lives. Um, I don't think that makes you a woman. Um, I think there's a difference between a woman and a trans woman, and I don't understand why that is something so controversial. There are women, there are trans women, there are men, there are trans men. That's fine. Um, the issue I have is when someone who, a, a, a trans woman or, uh, or someone wants to tell me why their identity then means my identity is something different. So to be told that I am now a cis woman. I'm not a cis woman, I'm a woman. Um, and I, I won't have language imposed onto me. And I don't even think it's really a question of feminism, if I'm completely honest. It's about truth and reality and, and being able to state facts. And you can't have any kind of discussion about anything if you can't first agree that there is a truth. Um, and I think that's important for anything, and it's, it's important for feminism, it's important for anything you want to talk about, really. And uh, just to pick up quickly on the cervix thing, which is uh, ridiculous and hilarious, uh, but uh, you, I, I don't understand why there's any confusion. I mean, <laughs> there was a number of politicians who seem to be very confused about biology <coughs> in general and need to really you know, study a bit of anatomy because I don't think they know what a cervix is and that, that's, you really need to start from that point if you want to talk about a cervix you really need to know what it is and where it is and as someone who gave birth recently I can promise you that um, a trans woman cannot have a cervix yeah. and that shouldn't be controversial to say and I don't understand why it is and uh, yeah and it is a big concern that somehow women are getting erased in this way okay thanks very much Anaya, your closing thoughts. Um, in relation to catcalling, um, I think I, I don't necessarily think that that is rooted in a hatred of women or misogyny. Um, so I don't personally like catcalling, but I do think that it is almost like a throwback 
because some women, some men are creeps or, or, or like some men um, find women attractive. That's something, you know, shocking, clearly. And I think that's the way that they express it. And that is now, again, in decline because women have pushed back against it and they have expressed that they don't like it. And I think many of those in a new generation of men, they're probably unlikely to, to catcall and do things like that again. So I think that um, now we are having new norms in relation to how men and women should relate to one another. And I don't think that seeing catcalling um, or, or men complimenting uh, you in a situation of your everyday life as some kind of threat to you or, or on a spectrum, I think it's just um, something that's a throwback because some men don't really know how to express that they find some women attractive. And I think we have to be okay with that, that some men find women attractive um, and, and not find, see that as something fearful. But we are still figuring out now in this, in this new time what the proper rules are in relation to how we re relate to one another as, as men and women. All right, thanks very much, Maria. Belinda. Well, yeah, I've absolutely found myself in situations where I felt completely frightened and, and hated being groped and touched up and all these things, especially at work in the 90s, where when I went and complained to my boss that I was being stalked and groped and all the rest of it, really sweet guy, quite a lefty, nice, you know, woke guy, if you like, and he would just lean back and he was like, oh, don't be so silly, Belinda, he just fancies you, give him a break. And I thought then, oh my God, that's what scared me, that, that actually there was no recognition from a really nice guy how frightening it is to be uh, with a big man who wants something from you and you can't really, you know, you feel scared to walk home because he's following you. So there is that. But I also think women are quite capable of smacking a hand away, saying stop staring at my boobs, and all, we, we're capable of doing that. We need to get more kind of angry at the right people, but not let it make us uh, be frightened. Um, I, I think the abuse that Kathleen, Kathleen Stock and many other women have suffered from this, it's like a narcissistic rage that they face just for saying what a woman is. How on earth has we, have we got here? I'm completely in agreement. Trans women and women are different because they're biologically different sexes, and there's nothing wrong with saying that. I don't like the idea we have to peddle lies and be forced to use language to, to, to help someone's feelings when it comes at such a cost to women. You know, there's a reason why it's only women's language being erased and not, not men's. This gender ideology is, is quite attacking on women at the moment, and it needs to just take a step back and we just talk in facts and truths. Um, so as long as we stick to reality, I think trans women and women are going to get along just fine. Thank you very much. Julie. Trans activists are the modern day men's rights movement, that's all it yeah. is, and it's distinct from trans people wanting to live their lives. Um, the thing about the cervix, it reminds me of a cartoon by, I think, Jackie Fleming, a fe great feminist, in the 1980s, where a girl went to her father, who was reading the Racing Post, and said, Dad, what's an orgasm? And he said, I don't know, love, ask your mother. <laughs> and so. Yeah. So that's that. The thing about the pepper spray and about women carrying weapons, no, I've got another idea. Just stop raping, killing and beating us and then that will be fine. Right, thanks our panel. Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021.